Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. I think every once in a while we remind people how to orient themselves in the epistles. So you'll find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric Power Company, if you will, and then all the T's in alphabetical order. And so 2 Thessalonians will be nestled in there toward the back of your Bible. You guys, can you believe we get to do this again? I mean, you, could have, you could not be here this week. The Lord could have called you home, or you could be taken away for some other reason, unable to gather with the saints of God under the word of God. And here we have this immense privilege to hear you guys singing like that and meaning it stokes my faith to go on another week, to continue to sing, to continue to press on, to know the Lord and to rejoice in him because he's worthy. And he's worthy right now of our undivided worship and attention as we gather under his word. I'm excited to get to jump into this new series David began for us last week. He, we've never done this before. He concluded one series while starting another series at the same time. So well done, Townsend. Uh, we, we ended our series called Christ is King by beholding the return of King Jesus where he will come to rescue his people at last. And his judgment of the wicked is part of that salvation. And so that was the topic of last week, how God uses and works even his sanctifying judgments now in his people. He uses suffering of this present time and our endurance in the midst of suffering to purge us and to create in us a holiness that will be real when he comes to be glorified in his saints. And you'll remember from our, first, our study of 1 Thessalonians that the gospel came to these people in Macedonia with great power and with full conviction. They lived in a, a pagan culture, much like ours. There was much hostility to this strange news of another king called Jesus. And they were persecuted. They, the gospel came to them in the midst of much affliction, Paul writes. But into the midst of much affliction, they turned from their idolatry to serve living God. And now this second letter is being written shortly after where Paul is writing to address some of their concerns and to rebuke some of their sins. And today we're concluding chapter 1 in verses 11 and 12. It's a prayer from Paul of living in light of this return of Christ, living in between this great redemption of Christ by his blood and our waiting on being glorified with him when he comes. One of the problems that we encounter as we find ourselves in similar circumstances to the Thessalonian church, and remember Paul's writing into the midst of them being persecuted for their faith, them enduring much suffering. And I've been feeling this lately, and I think a good number of people in our church have as well, that when we encounter suffering, whether it's clearly for the name of Christ, but sometimes even more difficult, suffering that just seems to happen for no reason. God has a reason, but we can't see it. We can't discern it. And we are so tempted and hardwired into languishing in the midst of suffering. Paul's commended them because they're pressing on in steadfastness in the midst of trials, but we're so prone to growing weary in the midst of suffering. I was just reading yesterday in 1 Peter chapter 5, and it's clear that Paul is calling them to stand firm in the midst of suffering and trials because the enemy's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. And I was just thinking, the Lord and the enemy are both trying to use this suffering, one for me, one against me, and I'm called to stand firm and to press on to know him, but so often it, our suffering causes us to languish and 
unbelief. It attacks our faith. It attacks our hope in the Lord. We lose sight of God's call of us, and so we lose sight of walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Our, our calling to honor him and to make him known. And so into that comes Paul's prayer of blessing for the Thessalonian church. So I'd like to ask you if you're physically able to stand to honor the reading of God's word. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. To this end, we pray always for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we have come this morning to your living word and to Christ, our living hope. Lord, we know that apart from your Spirit's gracious aid, we will see nothing. We'll leave just like we came. Our faith unstoked, our obedience to you unmoved. God, we are desperately dependent on your grace, on your kindness to help us Give us the humility to approach your word with fear and with trembling and with awe. And would you create in us humble hearts that are eager to listen, eager to obey all that your spirit has to say to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So the heart of this text is that through God's gracious enabling, that's ingredient number one and very important, Through God's gracious enabling, we must resolve to glorify the name of Christ by walking in a manner worthy of his calling. So it's by God's gracious enabling, we resolve to glorify the name of Christ as we walk in a manner worthy of his calling. So I want to begin with the heart of this prayer. We're going to spend a lot of time unpacking this prayer and this this blessing that Paul gives to them for how can they live faithfully in the midst of a lot of suffering and persecution, how can they live faithfully as they wait on this return of the king when he comes and he glorifies those at last whom he has redeemed by his blood and we wait patiently and longingly for that day. But I want to go right to the heart of why Paul prays what he does before we unpack what he prays for them. And you can look at this in verse 12. There's this hinge. He's, he asks God for these things for them. And he says, the reason why, the great aim of this prayer and of your life is so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. This is a staggering prayer. If you think about who Jesus is and you think about who you are, that it is even possible for the name of Christ to be glorified through your life. This is the great hope and privilege and aim of your life, beloved. That Jesus, now we don't add to his glory as if we make him more glorious, but we are able to, with our lives, showcase how glorious and worthy of worship he is, both as our creator and our redeemer. And your life can actually result in Jesus receiving more worship, more honor, more praise because of the conduct of your life, because of the way that you walk with him by faith. And so that's what Paul is praying. He uses this language, the name of Christ, because the name of someone represents their person. It's who they are. So When we talk about the name of Christ, we're talking about his glory, his character, his salvation, his worth. And Paul's saying all of that, I'm praying that that would be magnified through your life, that your life would be like a megaphone to declare the worth and the supremacy of Christ Jesus the King. And so 
That makes us lean into what he's praying for. He says, yes, I want that from my life. I don't see how to get from where I am mired in the midst of suffering and persecution to that. But that's what I want. And we must prize him and his honor and his glory enough where we know if he is using this to produce that, then I'm available to him. I, I want Christ to be magnified in my life, whether through life or through death. But don't miss this. Paul is praying that Jesus would be prized and his name rejoiced in and known throughout the earth because of their lives. What a privilege. What an aim for your life that the king of glory would actually receive more glory from those from whom he's worthy of their worship because of the way that you lived your life, because of the way that you responded in the midst of suffering and persecution. This name that was now despised in Thessalonica, this king who was now mocked in Thessalonica would come to be worshiped and his name bowed to because of their conduct, because of their life. And so this is our, our holy and our great privilege of our lives. And if we do so, it will be because of these two main ingredients in this prayer. These two threads that one run throughout, and they are not equal. <laughs> one, one fills the whole recipe and is the ingredient, and one is our part. And so the first is, God's glorious grace and enabling. If, if your life is to result in glory to the name of Christ, it will be entirely because of God's grace and his enabling. This is seen in that Paul is praying for these things. He's asking for God to do these things in them. But he also ends the prayer that all of this would be according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this whole short prayer is saturated, dripping with the grace of God in Christ. And so I, I wanna take a moment before we get into our part to marvel with you at him and these gleanings of his grace in this prayer. The first is that God calls us and gives us faith in Christ. It's the first way we see his grace in this prayer. He calls us to his calling and gives us faith in Christ. We could stop right here and just marvel at this. When you remember who you are, and I think the longer we walk with Jesus, the more this is a marvel to us. You, you still, even after I've been given the Holy Spirit and you see how sinful I am, even being born again and having the Holy Spirit, I'm still this sinful? You still want me? You still have called me to yourself? And note that he says, this is not God making you walk worthy or counting you worthy of your calling. Not here. He's saying this is his calling. It's he who has called you to his grace. And that's what I want to emphasize here, that all of us have this testimony of Paul when in Galatians he says, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. This is the testimony of every believer. Before you were ever born, before you ever sinned and needed a savior, God set his electing love on you. There was such wonder and humility and security in this truth. The external call of God goes out into all the world, calling all men everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. Everyone needs a Savior and needs to be rescued from the wrath of Almighty God that is justly aimed right at them for their hostility to Him and to His glory. And all this external call of the gospel goes out throughout all the world, and he has appointed messengers to go and proclaim the truth of who Christ is and what he's done, and to call men everywhere to repent and to believe on him. And 
unless that external call is accompanied by the internal call of God, then no one will be saved. There's a reason why you can go out into Brattleboro and you can proclaim to everyone that Jesus is king and that he has ransomed people for God by his blood so that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. And some will believe and some will not. But the, the clarion call of the gospel awakens people to life, those whom call has, God has called to believe on him. Paul writes about it this way in 2 Corinthians, that God who said, let there be light at creation, and there was light, has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. He came to your cold, spiritually dead heart, and he cried out, live, and you came to life. Lazarus is such a, a picture for this in John chapter 11, where he had been dead for days. What did Lazarus have to do with his resurrection? What part did he play? What did he contribute? He had been dead four days. And Jesus came and he said, Lazarus, come out. And the only other instructions to give were take the grave clothes off of him because he was alive. This is what happened to the Thessalonians when the gospel came to them in power. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How did he know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know that God set his love on you before the foundation of the world because when the external call of the gospel came, you came to life because internally he called you to his grace and revealed his son to you and in you. God's word is clear. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And what changed was God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in a Lazarus creation producing kind of way. And he gave us his grace and the faith to believe on Jesus. It was not our doing. It was the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast before God. And if you think your salvation somewhat depended on you, then you might live with a, a little bit of self-pity, a little bit of, God, how could I go through this because of all that I am to you and all that I chose to follow you and now I'm getting this? Or we, we start to feel entitled before God. And God gives us this nature of his unmerited mercy so that we would be humbled before the cross of Christ and before his electing love. For me to actually know that I deserve for my face to be aflame with the just judgment of God against sin. And instead, I get to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the only difference is God had mercy on me. In John chapter 1, he says it this way. We received Christ, believing in his name, and God gave us the right to become children of God, being born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So just like you did not decide to be born physically, you did not decide to be spiritually born again. God's grace did not passively respond to you calling on the name of Christ for salvation. It preceded and enabled it. So it's not like God's got grace that's sitting there latent and then people respond calling on the name of Christ by their own wisdom and then he responds to that by giving them grace. His grace precedes and enables our calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. His grace enables us to be regenerated by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so this ought to produce in us a rich humility and a wonder and a worship before God, a face-down worship, that but for the grace of God, we would still be dead in our sins and hostile to God and his gospel. But instead, we love him and rejoice in Christ with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And it's all because he has called us to himself and given us faith in Christ. But the second gleaning of grace is, yes, he called us, but 
Look at this. God counts us worthy of his calling by fulfilling the resolves for good and works of faith he gives us. So not only is our justification and our forgiveness of our sins and our uniting to Christ by faith a gift of his grace, but our growth in holiness, our acts of love, our very working of faith that is living out our salvation is a gift of his grace. That it's a gift of grace is why Paul's praying for it. He's asking for God to do this in them. Because if God does not come through and do it in them, it won't happen. And you think about what a miracle it is that you, even you, would be counted worthy of the call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a real language. That's not euphemistic language to talk about pseudo-worthy. That is actually considered and counted worthy of his calling. And... It will happen for all who God has called to himself by his grace. This language is confusing. You'll see it in some uh, translations that God would make you worthy of his calling or that God would count you worthy of his calling, but it's a bit of a moot point because God will make you worthy of his calling and then count you worthy of it because he made you worthy. Does that make sense? He, He will, in the end, count all who he has called to himself worthy of their calling in him. And the reason why is because he will make it so. He will make you worthy of his calling. We can be counted worthy because Christ is worthy and was worthy for us in the days of his flesh. And he is the one who is making us worthy of our calling now. He has imputed his righteousness to us by faith where God declares us innocent and righteous before him, holy, because of Christ's own righteousness in our account, but he's also imparting his righteousness to us. Paul calls it the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is the reason why he rebukes the Galatians. It's because having been saved by grace through faith, they were now seeking to be perfected by works of the law. And Paul says, look, you're sanctified in the same way that you were justified by the miraculous grace of God as his spirit works in your life by grace through faith. This is how God works in your life. He writes in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, sorry, it is of God that you are in Christ Jesus, and it is of him that he is in you. This is all God's grace. He predestined you for salvation through his son. He called you to himself He justified you and declared you innocent and righteous by the blood of Christ. And he united you to Christ as a new creation, filling you with his Holy Spirit, giving us the gift of himself. He gives us new desires. He gives us his law written on our hearts. He causes us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He gives us his own love for himself and for other people. He convicts us where we sin. He gives us the gift of repentance when we fail. It's all a miracle of his grace and his kindness. And then Ephesians 2.10, which ties into our passage here, says that he appoints good works for us to walk in. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works that we would walk in them, the ones that he had appointed for us to walk in. And he gives us the strength and the resolve to walk in them. That's why Paul says, I'm praying that God would count you worthy of his calling and that he would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. How? By his power. So even the part that we played is empowered by him and by his spirit that he gives to us as a gift of his grace. And this prayer really is ultimately a prayer for our perseverance on the road of sanctification. Because they were already doing these things. He writes in verse 3 and 4. David preached about this last week. They were already increasing in love for one another. They were already walking by faith and were being steadfast in the midst of trials. And Paul's really praying that they would be faithful more and more on this road of sanctification. Every believer travels this road. Every single believer is sanctified and becomes like Christ along the way. 
in varying degrees. And Paul is praying that they would walk this road faithfully and that God would strengthen them as they do. As they grew in holiness, their God-given faith would abound in God-appointed good works. And that they would resolve to do what is good and right by God's strength, even in the midst of hostility and persecution. So I hope you hear the dripping with graceness of this passage. God appoints the faith. God appoints the good works. God supplies the strength to do the good works that resulted from the faith. It is all of him. So as they walked this road and lived by his strength and enablement, he would count them worthy of his glory and kingdom. This is what he's promised to do for you. And this ties into our third gleaning of his grace in this passage. He says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in you. Yes, we already rejoice in that. He's actually enabling your small life to result in praise and honor to the king now. That is a gift of his grace. But he doesn't stop there. He actually says that he's praying that their lives would end in Christ glorifying them. This is the great end and true heaven of heavens for all believers. That you will, believer, actually be made like Christ. Holy, blameless, spotless, sinful. I mean sinless, sorry. You, you got the sinful part covered now. Sinless. When we see him face to face, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so we will always be with the Lord. This was God's purpose and plan for you before the foundation of the world. You can go read it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. It says, God chose us and called us to himself. And the reason why is that we should be holy and blameless before him. So if that is his purpose at the outset, when he called you to himself, he's going to accomplish it. He will do it. You are actually going to be presented before the presence of his glory with great joy blameless and spotless and pure, and you will always live together with the Lord in his glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He's promised it. What he was doing in our redemption was bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And he says he will complete the work that he has started in you. He will be glorified in the glorification of his people. That is what Paul is talking about when he says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. And so he prays this prayer in light of that. Jesus is returning and he is going to receive incredible glory and honor and power when he demonstrates his holiness and his power in taking all of us and making us exactly like him in the blink of an eye. And that is our hope. That is what fuels our life and our holiness in the midst of great suffering and persecution. He has showcased his love for us once and for all at the cross. And he has demonstrated his victory for us. And we know that this victory and this glory is coming. And so we press on and we endure by his grace. Jude verse 24 says that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That will be the end of every testimony of every believer. You can bank on it. Christ has accomplished it for you. He has purchased this glory for you with his blood and will graciously enable all your holiness along the way by his strength and by his power. So God will count worthy of his calling all whom he has called, and we have a real role to fill. So here's the, here's the hinge to the second ingredient of our lives actually resulting in praise and glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. He will accomplish it all, has paid for it, secured it, and guaranteed it by his blood. He called us and he is enabling our sanctification and he will glorify us together with Christ. And all of it is by his grace, according to the grace of our God 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given us responsibilities and duty to fulfill as we grow in holiness along the way. So that's the second ingredient. So first we had God's glorious grace and enabling. And here we have our resolve for good and work of faith. Paul had written in his first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, how they, in the few weeks that they were with them, how they exhorted them, how they charged them. And he said, you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And later he points to their sanctification as God's will for them. And it's a way of practically living that out, right? God has called you to his own kingdom and glory. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of his calling. This is the will of God for you, for your sanctification. This is what a life that is pleasing to God looks like, you walking out what he has placed in. So in our text, you see human responsibility responding to the grace of God. First, you see it in Paul praying for them. So if God was just going to do it, apart from us asking him, then he wouldn't even need to write this. He's already going to do it. He's going to count them worthy of their calling. He's going to enable it. He's going to strengthen them. But he has ordained that we ask him that we pray for each other like this. May God make you, count you, worthy of his calling. May he fulfill, may he give you resolves for good and then fulfill them by his power. We're called to pray for each other like this. It's our responsibility. But listen to this. He's praying that God would consider them worthy of his calling. And this really and truly means them. Not just some future version of them, but actually and truly that God would make them and consider them worthy of his calling. He's praying that God would empower their resolves for good, their works of faith. These actually were things that they were to do. Now, we're not undoing this all being of grace like we marveled in at the first part of this text, God gives the faith, God's the one who gives the resolve, God's the one who gives the power to do the work. So all that's true. And yet, it's our faith that works. And it's our working and our resolve that he gives power to. So I've got a few quotes and examples to give to you to help this make sense. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Discipline of Grace, which we've commended to you before, I'll do so again, he describes in his own personal testimony how when he came to Christ, so excited to live his life for the Lord, and I think as a new believer, you kind of get in this, I'm going to repay Jesus for all this kindness and grace that he's given to me, and so I'm going to go hard for King Jesus and just serve like crazy, and then you get frustrated because... You're still sinful, and you, you came to a dry season, and you don't feel the same excitement, the same faith that you had for the Lord, and then you come to the truths about the exchanged life and abiding in Christ, and so then you're like, oh, man, I had it wrong the whole time. I actually wasn't called to do anything. It was Christ in me who was going to do the work, and so I'm just called to sit here and have quiet times and abide in Jesus, and then he'll produce these things in me, and I just need to wait on him, and it kind of looks like this. And then Jerry Bridges came to this, what I learned, what, what the Bible teaches is this grace-fueled effort where I have these resolves for good and God enables them by his Holy Spirit. And we know even the resolves came as a gift of his grace. But he says in that book, there is not a single instance in the New Testament teaching on holiness where we are taught to depend on the Holy Spirit without a corresponding exercise of discipline on our part. 
right? This dependence on God is for some action, some discipline, some walking out this holiness that comes through human agency. I need to actually live this out. He's not going to come and take hold of me in a way that is outside of my control or my mental capacity and just start doing these things in me where I'm functioning like a robot. That's not going to happen. So he paraphrases John Owen. This one's mainly for David. Um, Shout out to my Puritan loving pastor. Bridges paraphrases John Owen saying, let us consider what regard we ought to have to our own duty and to the grace of God. So you have these two things, right? Your responsibility, your duty, and the grace of God. Some would separate these things as inconsistent. If holiness be our duty, they would say, then there's no room for grace. And if it be the result of grace, then there's no place for duty. But our duty and God's grace are nowhere opposed in the matter of sanctification. For the one, is, for the one absolutely supposes the other. Our duty depends on the grace of God. We cannot perform our duty without the grace of God, nor does God give his grace for any other purpose than that we may perform our duty. So we don't sit and wait idly by for the grace of God to take up some action that we have no intention of actually taking up when he gives us the grace. The grace of God comes to an intent and a resolve for the action for the duty, for the discipline. So I want to give you, I know this is an imperfect illustration. You have to forgive the breakdowns and the holes in it that result from using the imperfect and the sinful to illustrate what is holy and perfect. But I want you to suppose with me that the name Whittinghill, my last name, deserved glory and honor. And it was the responsibility and privilege of my children to serve and to act, to go out and to do good in a way that reflected the character and the glory of what they represented. You can already see the holes in the breakdowns, all right? Here we go. And so in that spirit, after having family worship around serving people in need, one of my boys comes to Kayla and me and says, I'd like to mow the grass of a neighbor that we know, uh, a widow that we know for free. Now, Bear in mind, this part is not uh, only illustration. This is real. They have no money, right? They have uh, marginal skills, no car. They don't have the strength or the knowledge or the experience to do so yet. What the son does have, and even this is through our training and through our time around God's word and family worship, what he does have is the resolve for the good, the work of faith that he desires to do. This is what Paul is asking for God to fulfill in them. They, as a result of God's word and God's spirit's enabling, they have resolves for good. And Paul's saying, may God fulfill that by his power. And so let's say Kayla, in the role of intercessor, Paul's praying for these things. Kayla comes to me and she asked me to do what I already had in my heart to do, which was to help him. I want to help him have the, he has the desire to do what we trained him to do. And I have it in my heart to help him. So I go out, I buy the mower. I drive him to the yard. I help him put in the gas, gas, and I help him push. Now, in my resources, it's my strength. It's his resolve for good and his work of faith. It's his exerting all of his energy in a cause of righteousness. If he does not push, I'm not pushing for him. He's going to feel like this is probably the hardest thing that he's ever done. He's going to sweat. He's going to labor. He's going to work hard. And all the while, the only reason why he's able to do any of it is because I've got my hand on the mower and I'm pushing it. I'm steering it. I'm guiding it. And he gets the experience of being with me, doing something that I had called him to do by the strength that I supplied. And he labors and toils and gets it done. And he had the resolve for good that God gave him himself. I will enable him, but I won't do the work for him without him. It's part of his growth process, and we get to work together 
to magnify the name. So this is the principle observable throughout Scripture. Divine enablement comes to resolves to obey and to active faith. You can see this, Peter getting out on the water. He, he doesn't start walking on water until he sets his foot on it. And as he plants his foot in faith, the water hardens up underneath his foot. You can see this with the waters parting for the priests of Israel. But God sends the waters back as the Ark of the Covenant draws near. But it's when their toes touch the edge of the water that the waters go back and give them a space to cross. You can see this with Elisha with the jars of oil in 2 Kings chapter 4. When God calls them to put out, he goes, says, go gather every jar that you can find. And so they gather all these jars. And when they had filled up the last jar, this miracle oil ran out. If they had found more more jars, there would have been more oil. He has as much strength and supply to give to your faith. So you bring the jars, you bring the resolves for good, knowing that the jars and the resolves all come from him in the first place, and he will supply his strength and his power, his enabling to your resolves for good. Or a New Testament example, you can see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says, my God will multiply seed to the sower, so increase, and in, by doing so, increase the harvest of your righteousness. You give, and God will give you resources to give. You set your heart on being generous and blessing other people, and he will supply the resources for you to be generous with, and all of it results in you actually becoming more righteous. You can see this in Paul's ministry. We're looking at this idea of grace-fueled effort, or what I'm calling in the sermon, grace-laden resolve. The resolve comes from the grace of God, but it's one that we must actually exert. In Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So which is it? Is it Paul working or is it God working? And the answer is yes. Paul says, I toil. The word is like I'm wearying myself with effort. I'm exhausted laboring over you until Christ is formed in you, he tells the Galatians. It's his real anguish. It's his real toiling. The word for struggling is this agonizing. He is in agony from the strength that he's exerting. And he exerts all that strength by the power that the Holy Spirit energizes him with, enabling him to continue to toil, to continue to struggle for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. He worked hard, but it was God's grace in him fueling his efforts. God calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in us, both to work and to do for his good pleasure. And so because God is at work in us, because we have his calling that is all of grace, then we are called to work out that faith in a new and a holy life that is zealous for good deeds. You see this in Titus when Paul is saying, look, he saved you. It wasn't by works that you did in righteousness. It's according to his mercy and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And so our people must learn to engage in good deeds, to be zealous for good deeds. That These works of faith follow the grace of God in Christ. It is all of grace. It's all him. And because it's all him, I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. And the only way that I'm doing so is by the grace that he supplies. So we have to walk in both of these. Self-reliant determination will only result in you being frustrated or self-righteous. You're working hard for God, away from God. But mystical passivity will leave you waiting on change and obedience that will never come. 
I'll make sure you hear that. Mystical passivity. Just thinking, well, I'm going to abide in Jesus and he'll lead me and guide me without any intention of actually doing what he commanded now, obeying what he's saying right now, will result in you waiting on a change and acts of righteousness that will never actually happen. Because you have to resolve to do them. You have to obey. You have to have the discipline to do what God's called you to do. So we, we need to leave this place and actually make plans to take up that thing that we've been putting off, that he's been laying on our hearts. We have to actually go and change what he's convicted us about. Don't pray and ask for him to change us and then make no efforts at the change. This is, um, I wasn't planning on saying this and I would get emotional talking too much about it, but this is, this is Eric's big testimony of, from both of us probably being overly influenced by this mystical passivity and waiting on the Holy Spirit to come produce in us, apart from our acting, apart from our resolve to obey, waiting on him to come produce an obedience in us without us ever making a step in that direction. And over the course of, man, we've been up here eight years, and I tell you, I used to talk to Eric like, bro, you have this call on your life. You have this call to preach, and you just need to do it. And there was this, we revere so much these saints that have gone before us, and it's sort of like, well, I want to wait till I become them so that I can step into this thing with faithfulness. And there's this shift that happened a few years ago where he's just, I'm going to resolve to obey and trust him for the grace. I'm going to take up my duties and be focused on being the man that God's called me to be. And I don't know a better example in this church of this than that man now, of, of saying, I am going to do what Jesus has called me to do, and I will trust him for the grace to supply the strength to do these things. And so follow him as, you follow, as he follows Christ. That, that we know that he has set the table for our resolve with his grace. You're not going to resolve to do one thing that's of his will, that he will not give you the grace. he supply you with the strength to do it. But don't make him wait for you to step out in faith to do what he's called you to do because you're waiting on some mystical feeling or some magical feeling instead of saying, God, I choose to obey. Over above my feelings, I choose to have faith. That thing that you've been calling me to write, that thing that you've been calling me to do, that sin that you've been calling me to walk away from, that, that innocuous habit that you've called me to put down, I am going to choose to obey and trust you for your grace. And so in, in closing, I was going to give us potential resolves, but I thought, this call comes to us collectively as a church, but it also comes to you individually. And that's one thing about preaching to a room full of people is we're not all going to have the same works that God's appointed for us to walk in. It's going to actually take you walking with God and hearing the voice of his Holy Spirit and following his conviction and you walking in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in. And so I urge you to get alone with the Lord and allow him to give you fresh resolves for good, fresh works of faith for him to accomplish by his power as you resolve to do them. And then for us as a church to have this great resolve together, which is from Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life, remember that's a y'all, only let y'all's manner of life, this is to all of us. Only let all of your manner of life, your one life together, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what he's called us to. 
in the midst of all these other resolves for good, we know that this is a resolve for good that he has called us to, to strive side by side, to live life together side by side for the faith of the gospel, for each other's faith in the gospel, and for the faith of the gospel among those who don't know him, those who are currently hostile to the gospel, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and us in him when we see him face to face. We actually get to be a part of one another's salvation in Christ as we labor for each other side by side, for each other's sanctification and for the gospel. And so my prayer for us as we close is may he make us and count us worthy of his calling. And may he fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith that he gives us by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and us in him according to the lavish grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, that is our heart. That is our cry to you. Lord, it is staggering that you would call us to yourself, that you would include us in the benefits of the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would put us on our face afresh before the grace of God in Christ, that all the bounty that is ours because of Jesus and in him would put us on our face and cause us to weep with gratitude and joy. And that we would live our lives in that place, but that we would rise up from worship to worship you through our lives, through great acts of righteousness and service and love and obedience, living out what you work in. God, would you sanctify us in your truth? And if we know these things, blessed are we if we do them. Would you come and supply the strength for all of our doing? In Jesus' name, amen.